Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Hello, everybody. This is Todd Fredericks. I am uh, an employee of the, at least today I am, the, uh, who knows about next week, I think I'll be an employee next week, of the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And, um, you know, I have learned over the course of my practice um, that people are, um, people are generally complex things. That sounds pretty, pretty intuitive, but there's, there's a person who's got a broken leg, uh, and then there's the person who's got a broken leg in something else. And that something else has a direct effect on how they um, heal and how they recover from that. Um, the something else might be that they're in an abusive relationship or they don't know how to get out or that they're drug addicted and they fell off a balcony. And the real root cause of their trauma was their drug addiction and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And those are things that are not easily addressed by conventional medicine, but they still fall into our purview because we're aware of them and we have a duty to our patients to be able to get them to the right place. And so I thought it was important that people understand that right place in the context of behavioral health. And in order to do that, you have to know about psychiatrists. And of course, you have to know about licensed clinical social workers, but you also have to know about psychologists and what psychologists do. And so creating this uh, series of three episodes about behavioral health with my friend Don Graham, who is a professor, uh, assistant professor, soon to be hopefully associate professor of, uh, of social medicine here at Ohio University and a uh, clinical psychologist, as well as an instructor of record for the last a major course that our students face in their second year uh, is going to help us understand some of that stuff. So with that, I'm going to welcome Don Graham, PhD, Hi, member of the here. OU faculty. How are you doing, Don? I'm doing great. How that's, are you, Ted? I'm fine. So, and I, I'm glad you asked uh, uh, because I really am. And that's, that's something that's interesting, isn't it? This idea of, of we ask people how they are, but we don't really want to know how they are. Not usually, no. So I just tell them how I really am, and then I watch them. I, I, I'm a bit of a social engineer. I like to I like to watch people's reaction when they hear the truth. Mm -hmm. So when people ask me, "Well, how are you doing?" and I tell them, "Not so good." And then they, you watch them. There's this like you could see the, the the needle skip in the groove for a second, right? <laughs> and then you, and then they then the, you always wonder. Some people say, "Oh, that that's a oh, I'm sorry to hear that," and they walk away. Or a group of people says, well, "Why?" Yeah. You ever notice that? I do. I do. Well, Sometimes they stop, and it, it just kind of like. They shake their head like you. You weren't supposed to answer that. You were supposed to say something uh, socially desirable. So, as my as my semi boss for Return to Wellness, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to like the fact of how I approach the Veterans Health Week. The Veterans Health Week is heavily focused on the psychosocial aspects of being a victim of polytrauma, and how treating a wounded veteran is really treating their family, and that how. Um, Post-traumatic stress does not get better unless the whole family is treated as part of the issue. Um, and so um, I think it's interesting. And, and maybe, why, why don't people, Don, want to really know how you are? 
Oh. What's the barrier to that? Why do we why do we ask the question about how you are, but then we get really uncomfortable when people really want to tell us? Well, we ask the question because that's what we're supposed to do, um, and it's just routine, and people just do it without thinking. Um, and I think it messes them up when you're not saying the socially desirable answer because then they have to take the time to stop and listen. Mm. And people, people are, it's difficult for people to listen. Uh, listening is a, is a, uh, acquired skill. <laughs> it takes a lot of energy and in this day and age, and I don't, yeah, I don't mean to sound like a Luddite, but in this day and age, I mean, we want our information to come and go through our heads and move on to the next thing, whatever it is. And um, if somebody says, well, you know, I'm not I'm really not having a good day. I've got to stop and, you know, recalibrate how, what what I'm doing, how I'm listening to you and how I'm going to connect with you as a human. Yeah. You know, what I love about Mr. Rogers. What? Mr. Rogers always had time. He, he had so much time. You have to watch A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. You have not. Have you seen it? I have not yet. No. Oh my gosh, Don! You have to go see it. It's Tom Hanks does a brilliant job in that film. He does. He's a very good actor in general in terms of the roles he plays. But what what he comes out is how frustrated Mr. Rogers' producers were on his show because, you know, producing is all about saving money. That's what producers do is we figure, you know, I produce a film. I'm looking at budgets. I'm looking at how can I get down to Tennessee and back and not be in debt at the end of it when I'm filming a film. Mm -hmm. Producers are looking at the bottom line and how to make sure you produce that thing for the budget. Mr. Rogers is on a production schedule and he's supposed to make this, this show out of Pittsburgh for, for PBS. And he's supposed to, you know, warm the hearts and minds of children and probably a lot of adults as I still get uh, warm fuzzies watching the trolley go through his living room. The fact of the matter is, is that Mr. Rogers, if someone came in, he would spend an hour just talking to them Meet while the producers are sitting there looking at their clocks, thinking of all the cameramen they're sitting there getting nothing done and the, the set lighters and the, 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 the riggers and everybody. But he absolutely understood that people need time. What don't doctors have? Time. So how do we teach the physician this, this, this platitude that they walk into a room and say, hi, Mrs. Jones, how are you? To be prepared for the answer they're not expected, expecting. And to, to to call the audible and get into the zone of being able to deal with Mrs. Jones when she really tells him how she's feeling. Uh, I think that's a that's a multiple answer question. I think one of the things is we've we've got to mix up the language. Mm. Um, I think how are you is just too easy and too routine and too in our brains. I think something like tell me your story, tell me what brings you in here, because what that also does is that flips the student or the clinician in our cases to to really like change the language which is really changing the nuance i'm not asking just how you are because then you can just say fine but you know part of the motivational interviewing skills that i that i that i teach is asking open-ended questions tell me what well you know tell me what brings you in today tell me what your story is tell me what happened to you is as our trauma folks say um i think that's one of them i think um Another idea I have off the top of my head is really when we're educating students is to helping the students understand the connection between listening to the patient and patient outcomes. Um, so what's the data show? So the data shows that if if a patient doesn't like a doctor, they're sued more often. Mm -hmm. That's research. That's real data. Legit. Legit. Legit data. So so if you want to say what's in it for the student doctor. The student doctor is, is if you're nicer to your patients, they're less likely to sue you, especially if you're in a high risk, like if you're a surgeon. Um, so, so, so the data says that. The data also says that if, you, if your patient feels uh, respected and trusted, 
uh, duh, they're they're more likely to come back. Um, they're more likely to give referrals. Um, and now the way that healthcare is starting to bill and manage care is going the way of the way of the current billing cycle is uh, it's based on satisfaction, patient satisfaction outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so social science really does play a key in helping physicians to build relationships with patients because it eventually is going to be directly tied to the paycheck. So um, I am aware of a case of a medical student that didn't do so well on their practical part of their boards. That individual wasn't quite sure why, mm-hmm. but it had to do with psychosocial dynamics and hum, huma, the humanism aspect, which basically is talking about, I think, fundamentally, how did you, uh, how did you deal, how did you, how, what was your patient's perception of the interaction? How do we, again, it goes back to that question, what are we doing as a school, and this maybe, maybe has implications about what happens in the clinical years of medical training, to take that student that is very comfortable around numbers and science and laboratories and turn them into a person that understands how to sit down, look at their patient in the eye, and listen to them. How do we train that? Yeah, well. In, in Dawn's perfect world. <laughs> in Dawn's perfect world. We train them because we, how to, we teach that by teaching them how to be present. Right? Mm, I like that. So so think about our population here. We have a population of really, really smart young adults who are very curious. Um, they're motivated. They're driven. They're good at other things. I mean, our admissions committee does an amazing job at picking some really cream of the crop individuals who are always living in the future. They're always looking towards that next complex. Yes. They're always looking towards the next board. They're always looking towards the next question. And what we're doing is we're setting them up to not ever be present. And if you can't be present with your patient, you can't really hear them. And I will, I will scream that from the top of this building. Like, if you can't be present, they're going to feel that. Mm-hmm. And it's going to change the interaction that you have with the patient. Do you like the fact that I turn my cell phone off when I walk into patient rooms? I love that. Yeah. I didn't know that because you're not my doctor. I don't turn my alerts are always off. People get my wife gets very mad at me because she says you never answer your text messages. And I tell people I'm not going to answer a text. I will not answer. The only thing I have is my alert. And if my wife's number comes up, she knows not to call me if I'm in clinic Mm -hmm. unless it's a problem. And I've told patients, I said, look, I have to take this call because the only time my wife would call me is if there's an emergency. Mm -hmm. But I let them know why. Mm -hmm. And I even will put my phone on the desk. And when, when I see a number come up and the patient looks down, I say, don't worry about it. It's not important. The only important thing right now is you. Yeah, you're more, you're more important than that. This is the most important thing right now. This exchange you're having right now. How do we teach effectively those social cues? Because a lot of students, like you, we talked about in the first segment of this series, they are drilled into their cell phones. They don't look up. Their whole world is wired. They don't understand how to communicate. The generation we're dealing with now has a really hard time with interpersonal communication. They think they're real and woke, but they're not really. They're real and woke when it comes through Instagram or exchanging things in the safe buffer of an electronic interface. But when it comes to really sitting down and getting into the nuts and bolts of things, sometimes I think they're a little deficient. What do you think about that? I think, I think yes. I think yes. Um, I think not all of it. I'm not going to be an anti-millennial. I think there's a lot of I'm not awesome, anti-millennial. No, I'm not saying you are. I'm just saying. I teach them. There, there's are, a, are they a millennial store or are they Generation Y? I forget which I one we're on now. I think we're on the cusp of millennial wise. Millennial wise. wise. Okay, yeah. I like them all. Um, I just want to make them better. No, I do too. And I think one of the reasons that we're, and, and so so I'll start with the, the, here I go again. I'm going to start with the negative and end with the positive. The, the negative, I think, is we're seeing the aftermath and we're seeing the downfall of that because we're seeing ridiculously high rates of anxiety and depression. The suicide rates are just skyrocketing. Um, 
And I think a lot of it has to do with the, just to your point, the people that don't know how to be present. We don't know how to sit and look at each other in the eyes anymore. It's always the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Like you said, there was a buffer, you know, you can, you can blog all day long in your own, your, your own little world. And it's really, um, I don't know, it's kind of self-serving if you ask me. And, and in some ways, because you can say that without any consequence. Um, whereas if you're individually with a person and you say something inflammatory, you got to be ready for the blowback. Mm -hmm. And I think to the, to the positive, the way that I think we try to remedy that is the more experiences we can give our students with real people, Mm -hmm. their CCEs, giving out to the, going out and giving back to the community, really talking and being, being, feeling safe to be vulnerable. Um, Dr. Longenecker's Rust program, the rural and urban Mm -hmm. program. the Scholars Pathway Program is really awesome because we put our students in uncomfortable situations, but they're safe. So they can, going back to what we said in the first session, so that they can, they have the opportunity to screw up when, when it's okay to learn. Yes. Um, And really just emphasizing that point, you don't need to be perfect. You need to know how to manage situations that are ambiguous. You need to know how to manage situations that are uncomfortable. Um, you guys do an amazing job in your sim experience with our students with that. I think more of those... Why are you coming back? You're only there one time. How do you even know I'm what I'm doing? I'm, I feel sad. We want you to come and watch more. I'll come back and watch more. Are you going to come back and watch more? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We're rolling out the new course I know right it's now. like you don't have anything else to do. Yeah. I know you don't have anything else to do in but, your life. But no, it was it was so much fun. And I, I you can watch. Yeah. Well, because Sarah's there. Well, and Sarah's just. And she's crazy. Bowl of monkeys. She's <laughs> she is, That is true. She's she is a great. bowl of monkeys. She is a bowl of monkeys. Yeah, Sarah's a bowl of monkeys. Um, Sarah Atkins. Sarah Atkins. Farm are, D. Are awesome. Phlegmatic pharmacologist. She's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean that that kind of work, like the stuff you're doing in sim, the stuff we're doing in CCEs, um, the really uncomfortable stuff that we we put them through in labs, um, working with populations that they've never seen before, learning how to ask questions the right and maybe not so right way of people who they've never had experience with. Um, and so the more that we can get them acclimated to be uncomfortable and learning how to going back to my you know the mend and repairs like those nuances of relationships, they're going to be much more comfortable in the clinic, clinical setting. What's it look like in third and fourth year? What's the, how do we, how do we continue to build capacity? Because obviously for people who don't know about medical school, third and fourth year are the clerkships when a student is in actual clinical practice every day in the hospital or in an office-based setting. In, in, in Dr. Graham's ideal world, what does it look like for the, for the well-rounded medical student that exposure to psychology and non-pharmacological behavioral health, what does that look like, that experience in the third and fourth year? That looks like a really strong relationship with our local behavioral health people. That looks like behavioral health primary care integration, um, integrating behavioral health into primary care clinics so that some of the structural barriers that are in place right now for patients, like I don't want my neighbor to see my license plate in the parking lot of Hopewell because they're gonna think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. If we can break down those kinds of very simple structural barriers um, and make behavioral health okay, and by behavioral health, I don't mean just behavioral illness either, but just maintaining behavioral health and that, um, you know, I liken it to, you know, if, if I have a bad tooth, I don't go to my car mechanic. I go to my dentist who knows how to fix it in preventative care um, and liken behavioral health to that. And it doesn't have to get bad before you need help. Um, and I think that that's a common fallacy. So to your point, interprofessional education teams, working in teams, the ability to say, I don't know this, can you teach me something? Um, with any other allied health professional, 
physical therapists, speech therapists. I mean, it's not just psych, but um, our pharmacy people, like people that know more than we do about other things. Yeah, there's a balance there that has to happen because I deal with pharmacologists all the time. Every day I deal with the pharmacists, Mm -hmm. every day. Okay, and every day in my work, I deal with psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't deal with orthopedists every day, and I don't deal with, say, the audiologist every day. They're more specialized groups of people. Um, behavioral health is an everyday aspect of general general medicine. Mm-hmm. If it's not every day that you deal with a behavioral issue, you will deal with it on an every other day, no less than once a week. You're going to have mm-hmm. some kind of if you're sensitive to what's going on in your patient population, in a general medicine spectrum. There's issues. So w- let me give you an idea and tell me if this if this resonates with you. Two weeks in outpatient psychology, shadowing and sitting there and listening to what they do, and two weeks of inpatient psychology where you see what an acute inpatient psychiatric population looks like from the perspective of a psychologist. I think it's worth every mo- I think it's worth the month. I don't think it will ever detract from the overall quality of a physician if we train third and fourth years that way, that they have two weeks and two weeks uh, to be in those worlds to see what those professionals are doing. Do you agree? In Don Graham's perfect world, absolutely. You think that's cool? Thank you, Dr. Fredericks. Yes, so, I think everybody should say that. So I have to yeah. talk, So if I talk to the directors of, of clinical education at one of the rotation sites and say, yeah, I don't really think they need to do the pulmonology rotation. I think that maybe you can make that up with general internal medicine somewhere or intensive care unit medicine. I really think they need to be with the psychologists, inpatient and outpatient, because of the nature of what family medicine really is. You okay with that? Uh, I would be. I don't know if the pulmonologist would be <laughs> would be okay with that. But I think, well, and this is why, Todd, I, this is why I think it's important, because we automatically think that the population of people that go to the primary care doctors may or may not go to psychologists, but I would argue the flip side. There's a lot of people that psychologists see mm-hmm. that never, ever go to primary care. Truth. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why they don't go to primary care. A lot of it's culture, a lot of it's history, a lot of it's... Um, if, if you're in the slumps of a really awful, dark, major depression, you're not going to have the motive... You're barely, you barely, if ever, have the motivation to go to your psychologist, much less your primary care physician. Mm-hmm. If you are a single mom who's working two jobs and feeding three kids, your health goes on the back burner. Mm -hmm. And so you might see a counselor when you take your kid to family therapy with the divorce that you're going through. Mm -hmm. So that means that your primary care doc goes on the back burner. So psychologists do and behavioral health people see a large majority of the population that don't have a primary care doc that only go to the ER when they really need to, which is not preventative medicine, which is the mm-hmm. antithesis of what we're trying to teach in osteopathic schools. There's also fear too. Yeah. So I saw a patient the other day in my my private practice um, that you know I, I ask him every time, "Have you had your colonoscopy done?" And I know why he's not doing it. He's in denial. Mm-hmm. He 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 doesn't think the, why why would I think seems to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And I can say, hey, you know, colon cancer is silent until frequently it's advanced. Mm-hmm. Just get screened. I mean, I've done it. It's not a big deal. I've explained the process. I've gone through it. Um, and that individual does will not do it because there's something, there's a barrier there. And I haven't gotten down to the root cause of it. Uh, he comes from a family where there's no real significant illness. And I think because of the that individual's profession, I think that's what's getting in the way. They're very controlled. I'm in charge. I can will myself away from bad things. Mm-hmm. I think that's the underlying psychology. Could be. Yeah, and I wonder if sometimes fear isn't the predominant thing that you see in the site in the behavioral health population that will see a psychologist but won't see a doctor. Yeah, maybe it's fear. It, what uh, if I find out that something is wrong? 
Yeah. And then what? Then I got to do something about it. Or then I got to pay for it. And they've already got layers of stuff they're dealing with. Right. right. I got another idea for you. And sure. then, then I want to talk about anything you want to talk about. So I have this thing and I'm putting this out onto the world air, airwave because I'll never get to it. But I really think this will be beneficial because I am a recovering uh, ER urgent care doctor where I saw tens and tens and tens of patients every day. And I had exactly eight minutes and 20 seconds to go from opening a chart to finishing the chart, including diag- you know, assessment, diagnosis, and have a nice day. You, know, you need to see your family doctor, which 30% of them don't see family doctors. They come to the urgent care for episodic care. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what would be, knowing what the compliance rates are with patients, that it's only about 40% uh, absolute compliance, I thought, what would happen if I could give a comprehensive history over the phone before a patient saw me? And then that was coupled into a word cloud generator that would generate themes for me and show me what the patient's waiting was of their concerns. Not what I thought, which is you're smoking, we get rid of your smoking, you know, your diabetes on control. But by asking questions that I could then look at the patient's generated word cloud to find out what the issues were that they were really thinking about, like death of mom or uh, addiction or those kind of things. Because I learned a long time ago, I can tell people to quit smoking until they're blue in the face, but if that mother's got a uh, 30-something-year-old son who's a heroin addict that's in living in their house, mm-hmm. she's not gonna quit smoking. No. No. And so I'm not sure that, we, that we're doing as good a job as we can with medical students, although I think, as you would say, we're getting better, to get them out of the, well, you're not doing what I tell you to, so I'm mad at you, mm-hmm. versus why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to? Because the reality is they're not doing what they're told to because the benefit and how they feel, because nicotine's neuroprotective anyway, it makes neurons feel better, um, that's that's not as important to them as the additional burden of, I don't feel good because my brain isn't getting the nicotine and I've got all these other things in my life that are really hurting me. I wonder how much farther down the road we get if we could do that. And I wish someone would do that. I wish someone would do a, do a study and see, does it make a difference in terms of patient outcomes and patient satisfaction if a, patient, if a physician is pre-armed with the word cloud of what's important to the patient before the visit starts? I think that's an awesome and creative idea. And I think that what you'd find, and I'm going to channel my my our colleague Joe Bianco, who yeah, he has, won't do it. I told studying, him. He, I wish he would. Oh do man, it. he's he studied trauma informed care for. I know. I'm talking to him about years. it. Years. So he and Tracy, our colleague in Cleveland, Dr. Tracy Schaub, who is a palliative care yep. doc for 30 years, yep. um, amazing human, both amazing human beings. Um, what what Joe, if I'm going to channel Joe Bianco, uh, he would say trauma. So you know the the language in in psychology land is not. Like the the question is what happened to you, um, and and I would guess that using your experiment uh, in the word cloud, um, you would find that though patients think that you know a colon cancer screening might be important, it's not urgent. Yes. And if it's in their in not unless it's in their face, they're not going to have to deal with it because there are other things in their face that have to be dealt with first. Yes. Now, when you use a smoking cessation, it made me think about when I'm teaching motivational interviewing. I, I, I try to teach our students to think about the relationship. So say, uh, say this is my cigarette. Think about, well, first of all, the research has shown and studies have shown, and we, we talk about the parasympathetic nervous system. I teach them how to regulate their vagus nerve. We teach them biofeedback, like all this cool stuff. This is why I got the best job in the world. Um, but when you're talking about smoking cessation or, or lifestyle choices, so cutting back on sugar or cutting back on red meat or whatever, I don't know, pick your pick your topic. But if you're thinking about cigarettes, you know, if you took the studies, were, the study was done back, I believe in the 60s, where they took 
two cages, one of them with a mouse and one with um, very regular shocks, small mm-hmm. shocks. Mm-hmm. And then the other cage had a mouse with intermittent shocks. Mm-hmm. Now, the one that knew what to anticipate just got used to it and got immune to it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not good, but it's they were still used to the shocks and their cortisol levels evened out. Mm-hmm. What happened with the intermittent shocks, going back to the chaos theory that you're talking about, that we all live in chaos and there's no anti-fragility. Really, yeah, anti-fragility. And there, there's no really main homeostasis, but it, it's always changing. That, that the mouse in the cage with the intermittent shocks, if you put a piece of wood in its mouth, the cortisol levels dropped immediately. Why is that a piece of wood? Why? Because physiologically, we're pacified with something in our mouth. Whether it's hmm. food, whether it's booze, cigarettes. whether it's cigarettes, whether it's joints, whatever it is, it pacifies our, ba- our, our brainstem. So I push our students a little further and think about instead of going in, because we all get judgy, instead of going in and judging, oh, they smell like cigarette smokes, I don't know why, they, they can't afford their electric bill, why are they still smoking, why are they buying these marbles that are like $6 a pack, blah, 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 blah. I try to think about, and I have our students think about, this cigarette represents a relationship. Mm. If you take away the judgy, take take away the judgy factor for a second and think about the cigarette like a friendship, how would you describe that friendship? And then put that on the patient. Well, it gives me 15 minutes where I can step outside away from my kids, or I've got a really demanding job and it allows me to 15 minutes to breathe, even Mm -hmm. if I am breathing in nicotine. I know it's bad for me, but my son, who's a heroin junkie, that's that's a worse problem. So I'll deal with that one first. Yeah, because this is my only moment of sanity. And physiologically, overeaters, uh, you name whatever whatever the addiction is, there's a reason our brainstems do it. We're built to be pacified by stuff in our mouths, particularly. So if you think about smoking cessation, yeah, that's a prime example. Yeah, that's how I, I think by building that empathy with our students. I think that's the way to start getting to Don Graham's perfect. World in what the touches picture. obesity too, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's the ultimate expression is people eat because it's comforting and it makes them feel better. And, yeah. and yet they're dying from long-term consequences, diabetes and heart disease and everything else. And sugar is ridiculously addictive. It's extremely addictive, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Do you, so uh, we talked about trauma-informed care. I did an interview with uh, this, the uh, social workers um, over at ABH about trauma-informed care because trauma in my world has always been you've lost a leg from a car wreck. Yeah. Whereas the new term, and this kind of has to do with the question I wrote about uh, pop culture issues of trauma, trauma-informed care, um, these are kind of the, the new shiny object that's come out in the last bit of time, which isn't to say it in a negative. It's to say that we're using a term I think is a difficult term because it sort of conflates a different perception. And how does it really integrate with overall well-being? I'll give you an example that I asked the one of the chief um, behavioral health folks in the military why we don't do um, ACEs screening of uh, of military folks prior to entering the service. And the answer was, we don't know what to do with it. And if we have a ACEs score above four and we find out they've been ex- experienced significant emotional trauma and we screen people out for that, there'd be no one in the military because mm-hmm. it's so common, these mm-hmm. things. And not only that, but what was really curious was that the perception is that a high ACEs score that is uh, in a patient that reaches adulthood, maybe highly adaptable for military service. Yeah. Because they, if you survive into adulthood with those things and you learn to adapt to them, well, 
combat becomes an easier issue, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, well, mm -hmm. that's not as bad as it was when I was growing up. I mean, this is just another weird day, right? Yeah. So I guess that, that goes back to this idea that we talk about teaching students. Are we teaching students the right things, or are we teaching students the vogue things right now? Is this going to endure, this a sensitivity towards trauma? And how do we make it to where it isn't just the new shiny object, but it really does become integral to overall patient care? That's for the a, long term? That's an excellent question, Todd. And I, you know, my fear is that because it is now this new shiny object, but it wasn't like, so the concept is not new. The concept is as, as old as humans and adverse childhood events, ACE. ACE yeah, Joe's gonna, I think Joe's going to, we're talking about that in week six. He's got a section Sweet. on that with PTS and ACEs awesome. um, and how that works together or can. But yeah, we're, we'll talk about that. And it was talked about at length in the interview. So if you ever listen to it, you'll hear what they had to say about ACEs and what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. But go ahead, Don, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's an excellent question. And I think that it, I think we can, it, I mean, it is trauma, but we don't have to call it that. We can call it underlying symptoms of childhood development. I mean, I think, um, you know, that, that when it's to your question, like when it ceases to become the shiny object, the root of the problem is still there. People don't grow up wanting to become an addict. Things happen to them, and addiction makes them feel better, albeit you know for a short amount of time. And so I think that by keeping the social science aspect to medical education and really exposing um, the students to a variety of populations and the ability to question why mm -hmm. and the ability to have these conversations with their patients, like uh, in a non judgmental sort of format which is hard you know like having 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 taught psychology students too like you need to know what your resting face is you need to mm. not exhibit shock when you hear things that are shocking sometimes because mm -hmm. if you do respond in a certain way non-verbally it will it will totally shut the patient up and you'll never hear their story yeah. or if they even perceive that you might be judgy um and then teaching them uh, our mistakes, you know, I tell them stories of, about a problem um, that I was so scared because I had a, a woman that was coming in and she was an active heroin user and I was young in my career and it freaked me out because I was afraid she was going to die even though that wasn't her presenting issue. I didn't address it. I got upset and I was like, if you don't address the heroin problem, you're going to die. She ran out of my office and she slammed the door and I never saw her again. Mm. And it was a it was a, a very poignant mistake in my career because I didn't take the time and I wasn't present with her. I didn't meet her where she was. And so as yeah. educators, I think, this is a little off topic of your question, but I think in terms of dealing with trauma and hearing stories, and our, our narrative medicine colleagues can talk for hours about this, but really understanding that each patient is just that, a patient. Anecdote. With a, a story. And though, you know, in... in current healthcare, we don't have hours and hours and hours to spend with each patient, but it is worth the investment of being present with them because once you understand where they come from, you're better going to understand how to treat them. So I, I don't mind the term trauma contextualized mm -hmm. uh, because the long-term implications in terms of relationships, in terms of trust, in terms of uh, overall uh, feelings of self-worth and um, self-confidence in terms of being able to tackle new challenges are all dramatically affected by those traumas that occur to young people. I guess my concern is helping medical students to put them into context that we have two types of trauma, and I think it's okay to say it in that way, that you have the, the acute trauma, which is the, I got my arm chopped off, I got a little artery laceration, I got my jaw broken. That's certainly that. 
Then we have this sort of more chronic and indolent trauma uh, or psychological trauma. And what I'm, curi- what, I, what I'm always worried about is that people poo-poo it, that they say, oh, well, that's hurt feelings. And they don't really understand the full impact of someone who was basically told from the time they were born that they were a mistake and that they are unloved and that, uh, you know, whatever horrible things are said by their parent or their caregiver, I wish you'd never been born. These things leave lasting um, impacts. And a person may go into society and be fully functional and can hold a very good job and regardless of socioeconomic status. But underlying that is a true problem for that individual in terms of how they deal with the world and whether or not the exterior trappings show great success in the sense of what the world deems as successful may be hiding very well someone who is deeply injured and i'm wondering how we better train medical students to sort of be able to mentally look at those two things saying yeah i want to know about your broken bones your hospitalizations i also want to know about what happened to you growing up or through your young adulthood that really hurt you that's getting in the way of you being the best you you can be. Mm-hmm. So we can think about that and how we can attack those things over time. And maybe it is the son that, that's a heroin addict or the, the fact that they use drugs a lot and now they can't, you know, that, that they were hurt or they contracted HIV as a result of drug use. And now they, they feel like a pariah and can never have a relationship or whatever it is. I mean, yeah, those are challenges to me. I don't know how to deal with that. I'm glad you do. Well, thanks. Thanks. Me too. Uh, most days. Most days. Yeah. But, I, but I, you know, and I think in, in terms of the education of our medical students, I think in terms of teaching them about psychological trauma, it's also just as important to teach them about psychological resilience. So mm-hmm. psychology's um, in the last you know, five, 10 years has started to study that resilience factors can be strengthened over time and they can be strengthened in adulthood. And some people use their psychological trauma in are very resourceful and resilient and um, use it in a, in a positive way. So I think, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but like, you know, going back to my point about teaching students to be present mm. with their patients and not jumping to a conclusion that, oh, you got type two diabetes because da, 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 but really taking the time to be with the person and saying, tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what brings you here. How can I help you? And then not being afraid to be wrong or not being afraid to, okay, if somebody does tell me, you know, some horrifying event, number one, what do I, what do, I do with it mm-hmm. in terms of, of having best patient care for that patient? Do I refer? What do I do? Um, but then what do I do with all those stories when I get home? Mm-hmm. Um, and how, what are my own supports? What are my own sense? You know, where's my resiliency? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's a two-parter. Um, and I think that the more that we can say it's one's not separate from the other, but it's all holistic in the osteopathic philosophy, then then I think I think we'll be on the right course. Do you think it's helpful for students to get out into really bad circumstances? So I think today I hear a lot, I've heard in the course of nearly three decades of practice, well, twenty five plus years of practice, I've heard a lot of awful things I never thought I would hear from anybody before I went to medical school. But I'm always able to contextualize it. I'm always going to say, yeah, that's really bad stuff, but I've seen really bad stuff in places like Iraq and Haiti. Um, I think that, to, at least for me, Don, that's helped. I'm wondering if medical missions, if humanitarian work, if getting students out in controlled environments for a week or two where they see how bad things can really be in the world allows them to come back and better put into perspective the things they hear at work and say, you know, that was a really rough day, but at the end of the day, I'm going to go out to, you know, spaghetti factory and have dinner and I'm not living in a garbage dump in Haiti. It'll work out. 
Does that help, or is that just is that Pollyanna-ish? You know, it's it's funny that you say that because I'm heavily involved in global health, and I've taken groups of students to Africa where I've seen that happen. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to be really careful in you know, I think I think it does change perspective. Absolutely, um, mm-hmm. I've got in terms of gratitude, I've got water, I've got clean. I also, it's really, it's we need to be really careful not to diminish somebody's trauma just because it's different from somebody else's trauma. Truly understand that. And so I think that if we can somehow balance that with our students. Now, does it give it an absolute perspective? Absolutely. You know, you in the places that you've practiced in, um, not to nearly to the extent, but, you know, in the inpatient psych unit, I saw things that I never thought I'd see and that I, you can't unsee once you see things. As a oh, there's tons of psychological trauma in those places. Yeah, and, and, and I think you can't unsee that. And I think by giving students opportunities to explore those places in a safe, controlled environment mm-hmm. so they get a little different perspective, it's absolutely invaluable. I think global health is absolutely in, invaluable. And, it, and I think it changes us as humans, not just as practitioners. Do you have daily debriefs when you take students overseas where you get to, where they get to talk about what they saw that yes, day? Sir, so they yeah. can, so you like critical incident stress debriefings? Yes. You think they work? Uh, usually. Not yeah, always. Yeah, I wonder this mix. It's a different always. topic. People think differently. So yeah. um, some people need to simmer on things before they can come up with an answer. Mm-hmm. But I think it's absolutely critical, uh, particularly in third world countries where I've, we've taken patients or we've taken students um, where they've seen things that they'll probably never see again. Um, I think it's a very, very important as a, from, as a learning tool to debrief at the end of each day. Yeah. So, Don, I know you have to go. But I want you to what what am I missing here in this discussion? Because we can we can do it again sometime. I just want to know what am I missing that when you came in here, you walked in the door, hey, what were you what what did what have we not talked about you thought you'd talk about? Mm. That's important to know. Uh, I think we could talk more about the convergence of uh, physical health and behavioral health and social determinants of health and cultural factors. Um, so I could talk more about the Appalachian culture and how that's different uh, for behavioral health and physical health as opposed to, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, as opposed to. I have an idea. Clean. That seems to me like a five question episode. OK. You want to do a half an hour on that sometime? Sure. That sounds great. And maybe we air it later on. But when you have time, because you said you had a three o'clock. Mm-hmm. Do you have a three o'clock? I do. You do? I do. Is it going to be really that much more fun than this? No. <laughs> <laughs> but it is curriculum building. So, so, listen, I'm kind so of, yeah. well, that's true. And so after week six, my bandwidth goes bigger. And maybe your bandwidth never gets bigger through the, because you have a whole semester of this. But if you, you want to, you want to talk about that specifically and that, come back for half sounds, an hour? That sounds amazing. Well, let's do a half an hour. Sure. On Appalachian social determinants of health in contrast to other places. Sure. I would love it. I really like that idea. Anything else that no, isn't that involved? This is, um, no, but I'll keep thinking about it. Do you like? Did you have fun? This has been a blast. You, Thank you. Well, you're always positive. Are you just saying that as a platitude, like, have no. a nice day? Yeah. How are you doing? Yes, I'm doing great. No, I'm being present with you right now. Oh, you're like, being real? I am having a blast. Are you yes. going to tell your psychology friends to listen to you? I will. I'm going gonna, I'm to share this podcast with everybody I know. I think it's awesome. Well, with that, I'm going to end uh, segment three. I want to thank Don uh, Graham, uh, our, one of our resident psychologists, uh, and certainly an important person when it comes to instructing second-year medical students uh, here at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. As always, I ask you to make comments, to feed, give us feedback about what you liked or what you didn't. You can do that on SoundCloud. You can do that on iTunes. You can send it through email or through Twitter. Um, but with that, I thank you for the 
you know, half an hour or so of time you spend listening. And uh, I really appreciate everybody that listens to this podcast. And uh, with that, I'll say thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. You're welcome. Have a nice day, everyone out there. Bye. Rotations is the periodic podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the state of Ohio, the state of West Virginia, the Department of Defense, or any of its agencies, Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication, or any of the agencies associated with these entities. The guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is produced, hosted, and edited by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is sometimes co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the streets. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without the express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema or by contacting me, Todd Fredericks, T.R. Fredericks, at MeWe. If you comment, please be nice. I have sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater. And finally, I would always acknowledge that Rotations was founded and created by Nisarg Bakshi, Brian Plough, and Todd Fredericks, all of whom have various and intermittent input in the production of Rotations. And we ask always that you consider we want it to be the best product that we can give to you. So please tweet, uh, retweet us, post us on your favorite social media platform, send us feedback, ask people to participate in Rotations. We would be grateful for that. It will improve our content and make it a better experience for you. Take care.